it is a silver surfer type grim harbinger of the porn to come listening to watching movies at the bar a podcast about movie bars and bar movies also bar movies and movie bars i am thomas grabinski and joined as always by bethy squires bethy how's it going doing good feeling nice drinking a shirley temple having an evening that's exciting uh even more exciting tonight we are joined by Young Hollywood icon, uh, Mason Spetta, works at Neon, is incredible online, has better taste in movies than anyone I've ever met this side of Bethy. Mason, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for the kind words, and thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here, and tonight I'm drinking a Diet Coke. Beautiful. Brad. Uh, Mason also has incredible taste in skirts. Uh, we met at my birthday party a while ago, and every single person, Mason, I gotta tell you, everybody who was at the party has said, oh my god, that skirt was so cool. About your your whole fit was like chronicled and, and uh, told of in song after the party. I'm so happy to hear that because it was a, it was a quarantine purchase, mm. and I wasn't really sure how I was going to wear it and style it. It's a lot of plaid and pleats and carabiners and leather and i'm thrilled that everyone likes it as much as i do (laughs) wait before we get into the movie um i i feel like you'll appreciate this mason uh i got the ugliest bag in the world i'm holding up to zoom (laughs) uh in las vegas this past weekend it was ten dollars it has so many zippers it is neon yellow it matches my hair uh, both my hair and the bag are glow light, uh, reactive. So when we mm. went to Meow Wolf, I looked crazy. <laughs> oh my god, amazing! And also very easy to find in a crowd, apparently. Well, I love it. I think it's a great bag, and it will go far. Speaking of bags, the movie we're talking about tonight is very much my bag. Uh, <laughs> so tonight <laughs> on watching movies at the bar, we're dipping into. A Year of Incredible Cinema, and that's 1999. 1999 brought us Magnolia. It brought us The Virgin Suicides. It brought us Eyes Wide Shut, The Matrix, Fight Club, The Insider. Really iconic movies, movies that people still watch and talk about now. But there's one movie that looms larger than any of them. Any of them. <laughs> and that's Roger Cumble's Cruel Intentions. Mason, why'd you, uh, why'd you choose Cruel Intentions? I chose it for a few reasons, that both that have to do with the movie and just the podcast generally. When Thomas, you told me watching movies at the bar was the the theme and the organizing principle, the ethos of this podcast. I have to admit, I didn't fully understand the brief just because I, I don't know. I like to really focus in when I'm watching movies and when I'm at the bar, the last thing I want to do is be watching a movie. <laughs> but um, when I was in college, the like dive bar down the street uh, called 1020 was always projecting movies silently. And it was like, I don't know, of our college bars, it was the slightly, it's where the grad students went and the really like liberal arts uh, folks, I guess. So it felt slightly elevated when I was um, 
you know, 19. And they played Cruel Intentions a lot. Cruel Intentions is also a movie that I don't actually remember the first time I watched it. I feel like I kind of just always had had it in my heart and in my mind, <laughs> you, you know, but it is one of those movies that's so familiar that when you, you know, see it on silent in a bar, it's like very easy to follow and you know where all of the iconic moments are. And also it just seemed like a fun movie to talk about on a podcast. And that was a big part of it. So very happy uh, that we're doing it this evening. Those are great reasons. So normally, Bethy asks what our guest's experience is uh, watching movies in a bar, and you got right into that. But um, oh no, I'm sorry. No, no. In addition to Cruel Intentions, what are what are other movies that you watched or attended to to some extent in a bar that were good that were right for the space? Well, to be fair, most of the time I was at this particular bar, I was had been drinking for so long that I couldn't tell you like which movies were on which nights you know I distinctly remember like one night The Departed was on and I was just like fully checked out of whoever like whatever group setting I was with whatever party scene there was and just like locked on the screen but yeah I don't have a ton of distinct it's all you know it's all blur those crazy nights at the movie bar and then I mean New York also has a handful of bars that are sort of Attached to movie theaters, the bar at the Nighthawk, or there was a bar that used to do like Twin Peaks trivia and stuff like that. And I don't know, those spaces. Oh my God, I would love that. Yeah, it was really, really fun. I also thought I was going to crush it at Twin Peaks trivia after having watched the show once. (laughs) No. (laughs) Believe it or not, there are a lot of factoids in um, the three seasons of Twin Peaks. But yeah, I mean, those spaces were always kind of like, I don't know, you have to really buy into just going full on movie nerd with a specific crowd who's like there and totally on the level of like, we're here to drink and we're here to talk about movies. And um, yeah, I thought those were really fun. But that's something that I found uh, after the sort of like divey college, college bard that just incidentally was playing movies in the background days. Yeah, totally. I think that's most of my experiences. Bethy, you have a broader array of movie bar experiences, but I get I get the dive movies. Yeah, I think I have a good mix of dive movies and like bartenders that are cinephiles who put on like hacks on or a couple places like they'll play specific movies that are like tied into like the theme of the bar, like mm-hmm. At the restaurant at El Cortez, they always have on the Maltese Falcon and like their sort of like film noir It's named after Bugsy Siegel, the, the restaurant. So it's like, this is the gangster bar and we watch gangster movies, <laughs> crime, horror, meatballs. It's a great place. Great. So to bring it back to Cruel Intentions, Mason said she was born with Cruel Intentions. Bethy, what was your first exposure to Cruel Intentions? Uh, I felt that very hard in me that I don't remember when I saw it the first time either. It just, uh, I was a huge Buffy head as a kid, so I watched a lot of Sarah Michelle Gellar's filmography. I'm a big fan of Simply Irresistible, her rom-com about a magic crab that Wait, helps what? you cook feelings into the food. It's like an adaptation of like Water for Chocolate, but set at Henry Bendel's with one of the guys from Boondock Saints as her like opposite lead, and it's about a magic crab. Wait, which of which of the Boondock Saints guys? The one who's not on The Walking Dead. Oh, okay. 
shit, I can't even remember that dude's name, and we talked about this, like, two months ago. Yeah. But, so, I I know I saw it, obviously. I, watching it again, I was shocked how much <laughs> this movie was an architect, like, an architect of my horniness. Like, it really mm-hmm. set parameters for desire in, like, my fragile, like, I'm gonna guess 12 or 11 year old mind. And then some of the scenes that I think people thought were, like, funny or sexy is, like, are now a content warning, just straight-up sexual assault. So we're going to deal with that in a little bit. But it was it was a lot. A lot of fun time and a lot of weird time. Yeah, but you have to keep in mind, this is a literary work. Uh, I did not realize the first time I saw Cruel Intentions that it is the, the adaptation of a very important work of French literature. I'm assuming this is on both of your radars because you're not dumb like I am. But... Um, this is based on Les Liaisons Dangerous. Is that is that bad? Oui, oui. Bad French. Beautifully said. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so this particular text is a book about two self-absorbed rivals who I, I haven't read it. This is my understanding. Who competitively seduce and exploit others, and they kind of revel in the cruelty, which dovetails back into our Marie Antoinette conversations, as this has been widely interpreted as a story about the corruption and depravity of French nobility shortly before the revolution. Um, and Roger Cumble, who directed Brendan Fraser and Furry Vengeance, decided to transpose this story to wealthy teens in New York City. Um, to mixed but kind of entrancing results. <laughs> I love that uh, because the novel, it's an epistolary novel. It's a novel told in letters, which I found out in my research this time. I didn't know this before. That's why everybody is reading <laughs> fucking letters in this movie. <laughs> like Reese Witherspoon. I, she Reese Witherspoon is always reading letters, applying lotion to her hands and wearing matching pajama sets like she's 84 <laughs> goddamn years old. It's incredible. But that's why letters are so key to the story is because it was an epistolary novel. So that's like the source material. I didn't get that as a youth. That's so funny and explains why, yeah, there are so many letters and why Lucille hides all of her letters from her cello instructor under her dollhouse. I just figured it was because it was, you know, pre-smartphone and they figured it would be better for the vibe than emails I suppose but you know what that that answer makes a lot more sense (laughs) I love that this movie takes such an antagonistic perspective on email the email line (laughs) is like one of the most incredible lines in any movie which is uh sorry is it Ryan Philippi or Philippe I've heard both I think it's Philippe Great. Um, so Ryan Philippe, after uh, being confronted with the idea that someone would send an email, he says, uh, email is for geeks and pedophiles. And I think that's one thing this movie gets right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, working in Hollywood these days, it certainly does end up being the case more often than not, you know? <laughs> Mason's an industry insider, so you're going to get a lot of this tonight. Well, I'm an industry insider, which means I won't talk publicly about any movie that's fewer than 20 years old. Hence, 1999, baby. 
yeah, I feel like Roger Cumble is more or less stepped off of movies. You know, he went on to have a pretty illustrious TV career directing a bunch of Entourage and also Pretty Little Liars. But he's he's probably not going to make a movie with Neon, I would guess. Honestly, I... Roger Cumble, call me. Like, if you want to do another one of these, let's talk about it. I have a lot of opinions about the current teen landscape. Um, We met recently um, the director of She's the Man, which is another movie that looms so large for me. And, like, I am generally a fairly cool customer and professional, the consummate professional. Um, Definitely geeked out a little bit in that one. Like, She's the Man is another one of, you know, folds into these literary adaptations of teen movies that I think I love them. They feel so rich and fun to me. And everyone right now, I feel like is very focused on, Oh, we need a revival of the erotic thriller genre. Sure. Maybe. Yes. But my focus is on reviving adaptations of classical literature that is not for children (laughs) in movies that are, (laughs) For children. That is what I think, you know, because the intrigue is there, the maturity is there. I've been thinking a lot about Gossip Girl as we got ready for this podcast and something that I, you know, I was looking at a review of the original books that talked about how they're children's books and the best children's books are understand that children are like interested in things they don't understand yet, you know, and I think that's why like Cruel Intentions is so appealing to people who are way too young to be watching it, you know, and continues (laughs) to be. (laughs) Cruel Intentions is like a perfect uh, overlap of two really important 90s, like, film subgenres. The adaptation of classic literature for teens and the sex bet genre as a whole. (laughs) It's beautiful that those two could come together in this way. Yeah, it's it's incredible, lurid trash. Uh, and watching it for my second time, I I think I am going to grow to love this movie. Um, Mason, I'm going to offer you first the distinguished opportunity to summarize Cruel Intentions for someone who maybe hasn't seen it before. And you don't need to give them every beat, um, but I would love to hear how you would describe this movie. But if that's too much pressure, we can, we can do it. It's no pressure. I don't know how well I'm going to do because my notes basically say sexy, naive, logic, question mark, um, and email is for geeks and pedophiles. But, <laughs> I'm sorry to steal your thunder. <laughs> no, that's okay. I Let me, to take a run at it, you know, um, Sebastian and Catherine are, I think, 17-year-old step-siblings who are living large on the Upper East Side. Is it the Upper East Side? Mm-hmm. See, we're already off. It is the Upper East start. Side. And they're, they're teenage terrors. They're beautiful. They're rich. They're nihilistic. And they have it out for each other. And on top of all of that, they're very, very bored. They've fucked everyone they can fuck. They've exploited everyone they can exploit. And Catherine has a bone to pick because she got dumped by her jock boyfriend and so she tries to enlist Sebastian to take out her revenge on him and the best way to do this is for some reason going after (laughs) his new girlfriend who we never see together by the way um who's a 14 year old (laughs) played by uh Selma Blair who's at the time I think a cool 27 
and her name is Cecile. And so they bring her in, she's very naive. They bring her into their wicked world of sexual games. And um, Sebastian, see, now I'm lost. I was going to say, Sebastian says, if I do this for you, but that's not even how the movie works. Like the twists and turns and promises and backstabbings and games within the game that make up cruel intentions. Um, yeah, that's why I wrote down logic question mark. This movie <laughs> makes its own sort of twisted sense, but at the same time, please never ask me to tell you what happens in it ever again. <laughs> no, that's that's fair. And and should we should we describe the sex bet that is made between stepbrother and stepsister? Please. It's this episode's going to be crass. This is a this is a crass warning uh, for any of our listeners. But um, if uh, if Sebastian can successfully have um, sex with Reese Witherspoon's character Annette, is that her name? Maybe Annette Hargrove. Yeah. Yeah. So Annette, who has pledged virginity until marriage, then he will also be able to have um, anal. Specifically anal sex, yes, with his stepsister, which is the thing that gets him over the line. Traditional intercourse is not alluring enough to him, but when she says you can stick it anywhere, then he's excited. But if he can't have sex with Annette, then he has to give up his roadster. His sick car. His his sick car, and he can get another one, sure, but he doesn't want to. Um, and those are kind of the stakes of Cruel Intentions. And then it escalates exponentially in the final like 20 minutes of the movie and the landscape changes entirely, but we'll get there in time. Yeah. The thing that Sebastian doesn't count on is that he, as so many who made sex bets in the past find out, you might catch feelings. You might fall in love with your quarry and then that ruins all of your other sex games. And it's a whole house of cards coming, tumbling down. Catherine does not react well to somebody else being like the number one woman in Sebastian's life. And she organizes his downfall. Bethy, you actually, when you met your partner, Colin, you were actually dared to, to woo them to attend a school dance with you. And, and you ended up falling for them. Am I wrong? Yeah, I was, uh, <laughs> I was bet by my scheming, uh, cousin-in-law that <laughs> if I could get, the head jock of the ultimate frisbee team to go to the Sadie Hawkins dance with me, then I would win a sick Camaro. And we've been together ever since. <laughs> Incredible. Wow. Mason, have you ever been bet to, to, to seduce someone or to, to partner yourself with someone? I don't think Bethy or I actually have, but. No, I, I haven't. Yeah. I'm thinking I'd like to now. Like it feels <laughs> like, it feels like fun, you know? And as long as it's, I don't know, it's not really, it's not very nice, is it? Which is kind of what makes this movie so good, is that no one's very nice, you know? If you don't mind, I'd like to get the actual sexual assault scene discussion out of the way so we can just have fun for the rest mm -hmm. of it. Totally. The, you can't really call it seduction, the coercion of Cecile, he gives her a Long Island iced tea and does not explain that there's alcohol in it and then threatens to call her mom and get her in trouble uh, for coming over to his house uh, unless she lets him perform oral sex on him. Uh, this, I think, you know, it, it was the 90s. 
people did not have the best idea of what date rape was. We're getting there. We're not there yet. <laughs> and and this, this read very differently at the time. Uh, but just want to say full stop, that is rape. And it sucks that Cecile's first orgasm comes during a rape. That sucks. Yeah, I think I think it's really important to get that out of the way. And I think um, beyond that, which is kind of blatantly offensive, Cruel Intentions is deeply tasteless uh, front to back in like kind of a profound way. And And most of the time, it's like kind of amusing. But that is really dark. So I'm glad we're talking about that first. Yeah, and I think what's, you know, almost as bad as in the follow-up when, you know, Catherine says, you can't stop now, you know, keep going. And all of that is nasty. I do, like, I don't know, I feel like the squishy thing about it is more, like, the movie doesn't seem to think it's that bad or that big of a deal. Everyone sort of goes along with it. Like, obviously, Catherine and Sebastian are villains. Sebastian does a lot of bad shit throughout the movie and then you know but in his love for Annette is redeemed and I was reading you know in the 20th anniversary like oral history of Cruel Intentions where all the cast and the filmmaker came back basically all of them were like yeah we could never do that scene or many of the other scenes today and what they did to Cecile was horrible you know and it's like Sure, but you know you're supposed to say that at this point, right? Like, <laughs> It's sort of filling an assignment more than actually – I mean, we don't want to look into people's hearts and say what they actually mean. I will say, uh, yeah, they are villains, these two characters. We're not supposed to like that they did this to Cecile. But after this – after this, all of this happens with Cecile, Selma Blair gets, like, pushed off of couches or, like, thrown to the ground multiple times after – this scene she's just like this weird prop that gets like thrown like off of beds and off of chairs throughout the movie it's it's wild shit yeah i find her whole character so incongruous with the rest of the movie (laughs) and also her performance (laughs) and i don't i don't know if that's on her i don't know if that's on the filmmaker it does sometimes feel that she is in another movie and it does sometimes feel that that other movie is like a sketchy porno you know she's so old and she's playing so young and like the forced naivete with the fact that this is like clearly a grown woman all of it is is just tough and weird and I find that I like in watching the movie you kind of go through these waves of like this is terrible this is the best movie I've ever seen this is horrible (laughs) this is the best movie I've ever seen and I do you know unfortunately find that a lot of the moments where I I'm not feeling that it's the best movie I've ever seen are the Cecile moments, you know, and are the stuff with her character just because it like, it's just so strange. I I literally wrote down Selma Blair is in a different movie. In yeah. <laughs> it almost feels to me watching it like she's giving a performance calibrated for the stage. It's like a performance calibrated to be seen from many feet away like anytime you're close and really watching what she's doing it doesn't quite make sense and feel sort of uncanny and the bethy the stuff you're talking about where she gets like thrown off of the bed it's like really disturbing on paper but it's like so tonally strange it's almost like they're trying to do this like shakespearean stage stuff but like not every scene is like like that three stooges like the physicality is (laughs) silent movie comedy 
Totally. I, I have a hard time being too disturbed by those moments just because they're like more uncanny than offensive. But the thing we talked about first, I think is just unambiguously bad. Mm -hmm. And you know, before, I mean, and I also, you know, it's worth mentioning this movie is uh, an equal opportunity offender. Almost. It, it depicts many, like they say so many nasty slurs and <laughs> nasty words about all of the supporting characters in these movies. You know, it's kind of like trippy reading again, the same sort of like look back at um, cruel intentions where, um, Oh God, what's, um, is it Pacey? J Josh ja Joshua, Joshua Jackson. Jackson's Blaine character. Yeah. Yeah. And he's talking about how like at the time, a lot of the, you know, roles, for gay characters were very, you know, one dimensional and he wanted to bring like something that was a little bit more complex and deeper, you know, to that character. But at the same time, like, is that character not just sort of a similar, I don't know, he's a bit of a punching bag in the movie and he is a bit of a stereotype, but at the same time, like, I like him. I like when he shows up and I think that the performance is good. And I think that it does, he is, you know, he's not like blackmailed because he's gay. Greg is, but that yeah. character is just blackmailed because that's the name of the game when you're friends with all of these people. When I was watching it, I was I was I was struck by that that the homophobia is more in the mouths of Sebastian and Catherine than it is yeah. in the text of the movie. I think Joshua Jackson's performance is understated. The fact that he mm -hmm. is gay is never a punchline. It's obviously really strange to see that performance when Ryan Philippe is again, using really offensive slurs in his company. But I, I don't I don't know that the movie itself is overtly homophobic. Oh, I don't think it is either. But I, I and I do think you're right that for the most part, this stuff is in the mouths of the characters and they're aware of it. And, um, you know, obviously making fun of this type of person. But, you know, I am really glad that you uh, said what you said about Selma Blair's performance, feeling as though it were perhaps meant for the stage, because I myself, had the good fortune a few years ago to see um, Cruel Intentions, the musical off Broadway, which, Incredible. you know, the music, it was like talking about like getting drunk at the movies. I got hammered at the show and it was like <laughs> the most fun I had, you know, Fox musical. All of the music is our songs that are on the soundtrack and the soundtrack is so it's heat, you know, it's oh. so amazing top to bottom. And um, so they were singing those songs. And I think also a few other kiss me sixpence, none the richer, like other sort of songs from that era were folded in. And it did have that sort of like, we're winking at it because we have hindsight about it, but also leaning into everything that like makes it so delicious. Um, and I thought it was just great. Let's go around and say what everybody's favorite bangers on this soundtrack are I, I'll start because it was my idea so I can give everybody a little bit of breather time to figure out what your fave is I mean they're they're all amazing but I've been humming coffee and tv by blur ever since the gratuitous lesbian kiss scene <laughs> like it's, it's a very funny song to play under that moment not like air sexy boy or something that's a little more like sensual this is just like a a thinker from like the the cerebral guys of Britpop what a weird choice, but I'm so into it. It's also a very <laughs> 90s mix where that song is like B 
buried under the scene and it's not diegetic they're just like we want this song here and then it like blooms as they're kissing uh it's good mason do you have a do you have a standout favorite yes and i think it's maybe the second most obvious one um but i love the colorblind cue and i think (laughs) in part that's just because why this movie sticks with me a lot and why I like it so much is because I do think that the sequence with that song where you know he's going to the train station and then he's at the top of the escalator and then they go and like have sex and it's wonderful like I find that to be truly sublime filmmaking like I find I'm so moved by it every time even though it's couched in all of this like insanity you know I just like when he's at the top of the escalator man it really really gets me and I just think it's so nice um and that that part of it is like the movie for me you know like I was watching it the other night with my roommate who had somehow never seen it and I think for a while was you know she's like 30 and she's watching Cruel Intentions for the first time and it's like this is bad meanwhile I'm like this is so good and she And she she also like she was like I feel like we're getting into showgirls territory because I showed her showgirls and she thought it was the worst which she's wrong but like I get it. Um, <laughs> you have to come back for showgirls, Mason. We have to do a showgirls episode with you. Yeah. Sorry, continue. Oh my god, I'm gonna need to really study up for that one because it's so ugh, the movie's everything. But um, I think yeah that that's the point of the movie where it really like takes on some actual emotional resonance and even if you're kind of like not in on all of the goofy stuff before it'll get its little claws in you (laughs) my favorite is the first needle drop in the movie which is you have this like helicopter shot of headstones and it's placebos every you every me um (laughs) and when i was like uh i don't know 12 living in rural iowa like really androgynous kind of like glammy goth rock was it felt transgressive to me. And so I like loved placebo and AFI. And when I finally watched this movie, I was like, Oh, this, this might be for me. And then as it went on, I didn't really feel that, but I do, I do love the movie. Mm -hmm. What's everyone's favorite outfit in the movie. I can go first. It's the silver mesh top. uh, Catherine's like silver mesh top where she has the gray bra underneath and like the silver leather skirt and her hair is half up. That one's my favorite. Well, that's what when I was she has her say like too. <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, fair, fair enough. I mean, it is it. It's the best. I do like the like bustier moment in her first scene with the like orange satin bra. I'm not gonna since that is actually also my favorite outfit is the see through top moment. Uh, I will highlight this. I don't remember whether I watched like a making of like they might have they might have just like put an epk like on e or something and so i watched this like maybe it was in the special features of the dvd uh this thing from the production designer explaining the color choices in the film and how Catherine's room is blue because she's very cool and closed off and then sebastian's room is red because he's a little bit more tempestuous and you're also supposed to eventually like him so he has designated hero red as his sort of like base color. Which and is then, crazy because he sucks so fucking hard. For all, I'm not sad he <laughs> dies at the end. I used no. to be, but Same. I'm like, no, this is fine. Um, but uh, Annette starts out in these like whites, like a frozen ice queen, and then starts wearing like pinks when she's like warming up to Sebastian. And then when she finally uh, is fully seduced, she's wearing bright, like saturated like a raspberry uh, 
cardigan and like a blue skirt. She's like fully in color for the first time in the whole movie. My my favorite is when Catherine first takes Cecile to the park and they have their kiss. She's wearing a black suit and a black hat and sunglasses to block out the sun. She looks like she's at a funeral. And when you watch it at first, you're like, oh, this person's mourning. She's mourning the loss of her ex and this this infidelity, whatever. But then you realize that like, oh, no, she's. She's the bringer of death. Like, there's <laughs> swagger in her wearing this dark outfit. Uh, I love it. It's ridiculous. Like, the movie dabbles in, like, really campy, formalistic ideas, but it's super inconsistent scene to scene. Mm-hmm. That's what keeps Cruel Intentions from, I think, being, like, actually very good, but the amount of, like, crazy shit in it makes it singular and kind of amazing. I hear that. Yeah. It's better in my mind and in my memory than when I'm actually sitting down and watching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really all the little details that sort of stick with you. The, like, Sebastian always, again, I'm just remembering stuff from this, like, this behind the scenes thing. Like, Sebastian's always wearing long coats because they wanted to echo the les, les liaisons, liaison dangereux uh, roots of the story. Like, they wanted him to look like he's wearing a, a fancy old-timey coat. And they intentionally made curtains that, like, spilled and, like, were, like, two feet too long for the window so that there's, like, this lush pile of silk on the ground in, like, every scene to sort of, (laughs) I don't want to say labial, but I'm not not saying it. (laughs) You're right, and you should say it. Labial. (laughs) I think that's exactly right. And the coats were giving me more, like, J.D. and Heather's. Like, he's Mm. a villain, kind of, but not really. I find him very unappealing. Like, that he... I don't know. Like, he's not... And part of it is, I know they're all in their mid-20s when they're shooting this. He looks very young in the whole movie and kind of, like, scrawny, and he's got that nasty little smile. And I (laughs) I get that he's, you know, supposed to be slippery and slithery, but he is supposed to be sexy, too. And I just... Maybe, aside from the butt shot, which you know, well done, everyone. Um, I, he doesn't do it for me. And, you know, that's fine. And that's not the point of this movie. But also, I, like, I think that Reese Witherspoon really nails it. I think Sarah Michelle Gellar is, like, pitch perfect throughout. And he's the one where I'm kind of like, I don't, it, I don't even want to say he was miscast necessarily. It just is like, eh, well... I don't think the movie would work like it does without him, but with him, I don't think it works as intended. Bethy, when you're talking about, like, the big coat, anytime you watch him, his physicality is kind of strange. It's like a child (laughs) playing grown-up, and he has these sort of, like, just the way his limbs move, he looks silly. Like, there's just almost a comical way to the way that he moves about. And also, like, I'm... I'm young. Like, when this movie came out, I was six years old. So, like, when I was the age that these characters are supposed to be, he he just kind of looked like, I don't know, a kid in chess club or something? Or, like, someone who, like, just really <laughs> hadn't yet discovered himself. And so there's this kind of uncanny quality to that performance. Sorry, I'm rambling, but I agree. Yeah, I think that for the most part, it 
works for me. He's really believable at being insincere. Like you can see the like mm-hmm. machinations behind the eyes at all times. He, I think, fails at looking sincere when he's supposed to be like genuinely falling in love. I don't buy that necessarily. Uh, and but I agree that his his physicality is weird. I think he's being very performative, but I for me that that adds to it because he's so self-mythologizing. He's writing this journal, mm-hmm. this mixed media journal. I cannot stress enough that he has incorporated <laughs> collage and like it's a watercolor. Zine. It's they a print zine. a fucking zine at the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, but he he really thinks of himself. He has lead character syndrome before that was a thing that we all <laughs> thought of. Uh and and I think part of so he always is sort of performing for everybody. Like his big like Mwah! gestures or like when he walks over the couch, he's doing that thinking, I look rakish and cute. I'm being funny and a little catty. I'm insouciant. Like this sort of narrate like I can hear him giving himself a pep talk in the back of his head eighty percent of the movie. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. I agree with all of that, but to me, it feels like the character is intended to meet the mythology he's created for himself. And when I'm watching him give this performance, I feel like there's a disconnect. I feel like he has a confidence and a perception of himself that is not reflected in who he is. And I almost feel like you want someone in the role who like really delivers on the promise of the self-mythology. But... I might also just misunderstand cruel intentions. Oh, this is just reminding me of uh, our Top Gun discussion, where it's just like, I don't, I'm not all sold on Tom Cruise, and thus the movie falls flat because I don't want to fuck him, and this movie really wants to fuck him. Yeah. And I think this is this is uh, this is your Top Gun. The movie wants to fuck him. You don't want to fuck him. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, and thus there I is see a that. fundamental this the the foundation on which the movie is laid, emphasis on laid, is y'all want to fuck Ryan Philippe, right? I mean, look at him. <laughs> and if you if you're not co-signing on that, then the movie doesn't make sense and is almost like a science fiction about what a, imagine a world where everyone wanted to fuck Ryan Philippe. <laughs> But I almost feel like this movie functions in the inverse in that, like, we like it because we don't want to fuck him, whereas, like, Top Gun kind of loses you if you don't buy into the charm of of Cruise. I do think the question of who do we want to fuck in this movie, is this movie, like, is the sexy, this question of the sexiness of this movie and all of the lurid, you know, things that are happening on screen, the Sarah Michelle Gellar, like, lap dance situation, the girl-on-girl <laughs> kiss, you know, the actual love scenes. Like, I think they're all sort of... It, it does feel a little bit like a kitchen sink situation where there is probably a romantic or sexual instance in every single key from <laughs> literal sexual assault to... Sweet, you know, Annette and Sebastian finally consummating their quote-unquote real love, (laughs) you know? And this movie basically is just like, here you go, here's all of it, like, make of it what you will. And I think that also, I don't know, the inconsistency doesn't bother me, but it is also, like, maybe why it doesn't. There's a little bit of whiplash just watching this movie in how well each of the individual scenes and individual performances and all of the events you know string together to create a cohesive thing because ultimately 
not sure that it does, but that's okay. But also it's, that's what keeps it maybe from being really and truly good. This movie uh, is really the last, it has to take place. It has to be filmed in 1999 because any later and internet porn is readily available. And I don't think this movie finds an audience <laughs> if like tweens can just Google porn. It has, cause it's, as we're saying, it's kitchen sink sexuality. It's throwing every horny concept at you that it can. It has step sibling stuff for fuck's sake. Like it is a silver surfer type grim harbinger of the porn to come of our future, of our current present, but then's future. I don't think this movie finds the same audience if people can just get internet porn because it feels very cinemaxy to me. I think I like that opinion more than I agree with it. And I'm speaking only (laughs) anecdotally, but in uh, middle school, we rented the unrated version of the Dukes of Hazzard movie because there were boobs in it. Mm. Um, And we rented and watched Psycho, not because we should have appreciated it as a great movie, but because it was, like, in the realm of nudity. Like, I think that Cruel Intentions had an enduring quality beyond the advent of internet porn. I don't know that, like, kids who watch TikTok now are going to be, like, that stoked on Cruel Intentions, but I think it had more of a shelf life. And I'll say some of the, like, some of the sexuality is so cartoonish or actually assault that it doesn't work. But the Sarah Michelle Geller sort of like lap dance over the pants tug job scene, still quite steamy. That one worked for me. It's like campy, though. I feel like this movie has an interesting camp quality. And I also was reading up on it to prepare for this podcast. And it has been like roundly embraced by the queer community. And I don't really understand why, but like... Uh, it is a movie that is considered to be very amusing. And also Ryan Philippe's butt shot is, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. very, very formative for a lot of people. But it's, I, I think it appeals to demographics that I wouldn't necessarily expect. Mm. I also think there's a little bit of the, the you know, diva, diva love thing in it. Like the Reese Witherspoon and Sarah Michelle Gellar as like, future massive massive stars you know in this movie before they were that and you know Selma too to an extent like I love seeing the two of them in Legally Blonde together after having been in this movie together and the sort of like star quality that all of them are bringing like they're still maybe not Ryan Phillippe so much but they're famous today and like Buffy has endured so Sarah Michelle has endured Reese's running running this town apparently so she's everywhere and i think that there is still value for maybe i don't know i would never pretend to know what the tiktok teens want to watch but i do think the like star power in the same way that like you know all of those 90s movie stars tom cruise julia roberts all of them like their old movies do have a longer shelf life because of that and it's also fun seeing like these massive A-list movie stars in like these nasty little scenarios that they get into <laughs> in Cruel Intentions and see them say those lines is really fun. So I think that helps. And I mean, I don't know. We all know that the type of movie stardom that drives Hollywood has changed so much in the last 20 years. And like, if you were to reboot Cruel Intentions today, which I hope no one is thinking about doing, <laughs> it is a bad idea. Like, which 
who would you put in that in those movies? Like the list of young talent and like young hot talent is so long. And there's like the CW kids and the Netflix kids. And I guess, yeah, it's it's a different kind of like young celebrity that's driven by not like who's in blockbuster movies, but it's like who has the social media followers and all of that. And I think that, you know, that's why I don't know. It would also you just have to sand all of the rough corners of it down. Like, I don't think there's a lot of teen content these days where people are the teenagers are being bad because they're bad kids. You know, you have to like kind of see where everyone is coming from in a way that you didn't before. Like the new Gossip Girl, everyone is very sort of they have their reasons for everything they do and they don't actually want to hurt each other because deep down they're all friends. And in Cruel Intentions, they're just bad kids. I like that. That's, yeah, that stuff is fun. I haven't watched the Fear Street movies, but I've heard that people are amused and surprised by how brutal they are because with netflix it's just delivered straight to the audience so kids don't have to be 17 or go with an adult they can just watch this really gory kind of like dangerous slasher movie at home it's weird that they aren't making movies that are like as horny as that is violent netflix isn't really doing that for teens right they are but it's like um i don't know i think like apparently elite is very horny the spanish language teen show and um there's something called, I think, Sex Life that is supposed to be very horny. I think there is horny content on Netflix. There was something about, like, I think it's called 365 Days, where a woman is, like, it's like a sexy Stockholm Syndrome scenario, I think. Yeah, they, like, fuck on a yacht for, like, 12 minutes, and it was, like, viral on Twitter for a day. Yeah. I remember that one. There's also, like, Sex Education, which is, uh like tackle sex in ways that are both horny and unhorny mm-hmm. yeah it would be weird to see who how they would update it they would definitely sand the edges off uh and i don't know who they would cast except for that annette would be lily reinhardt's role to lose everybody else is kind of whatever but it would have to be betty in that role i think mm-hmm. you know she'd go in there with her her brunette riverdale wig and say i don't want to do annette i want to be Catherine. i want to play <laughs> against type because that's what, I mean, I, apparently in all of my, my great research, like Sarah Michelle Geller's agents were like, you're Buffy, don't do this. And she was like, that's the point, you know, like mm-hmm. she wanted to be the bad girl for once. And also, I mean, Reese Witherspoon, too, said that the only reason she did the role is because she like reworked it with the director. She was like. Apparently, Annette was written much softer and more easily manipulated, more docile. And then that's how Reese Witherspoon discovered her passion for, you know, creating these uh, strong female characters. She brought some of that Tracy flick. We can thank Election for for molding that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is that, like two years before this? They came out in the same year, I think. But oh, wow. Okay. Election, she'd already shot Election. Because mm-hmm. Election's also in that little 1999 Greatest Cinema Year or whatever it's called book. I think it was also 1999. But it hadn't come out, but Roger Cumble maybe had seen it or something. And like she was living with Ryan Philippe at the time. And so they were like, we knew she was going to be a star, even though Election hadn't come out yet. So they hmm. really wanted her to do the role. And I'm sure they wanted to capitalize on the, the relationship, which they did. I remember it being those two as the power couple were huge, inescapable at the time. So they didn't mm-hmm. meet on this movie. They were already together. 
No, they'd been living together for like a year. Oh, wow. Okay. And I think got married soon after the movie. And I think had Ava pretty soon after that, which honestly, for all of that, and I'm, I am not questioning that they were completely and totally in love. I'm not sure it translates into their scenes together all the time. No. <laughs> but I also just don't know that he's capable of having chemistry with anyone. I think he's a little... What about Will Forte? Got... He's got he's got chemistry with Will Forte. I, I, I love MacGruber, but um, uh, I just don't find him to be that charismatic, even though I know he was like a heartthrob of the day. Oh, well, we don't mm-hmm. have to sing his praises for a lot of reasons. <laughs> I want to talk more about Annette's character because her whole, like, the the, re- the way she's introduced to the movie is that she writes, like, an essay, and I think it was 17, about why she's not having sex. And uh, this movie is, like, reaction formation against abstinence, only sex ed. Like, <laughs> it really throws you back to, like... This this feeling, like, I, I remember as a kid, like, the idea that, like, people, all these people were telling you that sex was, like, the most dangerous, crazy, terrible thing you could do. And this movie, like, illustrates all the different ways it can be crazy and terrible and dangerous, almost. Like, it's not an argument for abstinence, but it is very much, like, abstinence only education and uh Teen satiricon are very much like in conversation <laughs> in this movie. You feel like cruel intentions should have been shown in public school health curriculum. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, and it does. It does feel like a PSA almost at times. I mean, I we'd be remiss not to mention um, Catherine's girl boss moment where she gives her little speech about how she's the Marsha fucking Grady of the Upper East Side and. Men get to, you know, be sexual and have sex while women get slut shamed and she has to be nice to everyone. And that's why she does all these devious things behind people's backs. And like, yeah, she has a point. You know, I feel like that that kind of speech and those kinds of ideas about like slut shaming and um, double standards, like we're very, very far beyond that conversation today. But I don't know. Go off little 1999 <laughs> teen teen soap opera. Like um I do it does feel very at turns like endorsing this insane behavior and also like kind of preachy, you know, which is another just fun contradiction of cruel intentions. Yeah, that that speech is incredible. Uh, there's the bit after she says, I'm the Marsha fucking Brady of the Upper East Side, and sometimes I want to kill myself, uh, which <laughs> is incredible. But it's like a have your cake and eat it too thing, where like it's trying to sort of nuance this thing, but at the end she's like so definitively the villain. And to me it feels like Catherine becomes like, the enemy of all in the last 15 minutes. Like before that, it feels like she and Sebastian are on an equal shitty footing and they're both just sort of like saying shit too much, but they're both just sort of flinging shit. And then suddenly like she's bad and he's good. And I don't really buy that, that uptick. Well, she's the one who has the drug problem. So, you know, she has to be the bad, bad, bad one by the end. She's never (laughs) even that wacky when she's like doing key bumps. She just does it. And then the scene is super regular. It's not like she spins out. They only show it once right before her comeuppance. Like they cut away tastefully the first time that she does coke. 
Right. Uh, only see it, you only see it right before she gets busted for doing coke, which I feel like was a ratings thing. It's so mm-hmm. cool that it's in a crucifix, but... Um... It's tied to sell. Yeah, it's amazing. And I like when they... Uh, I love when Selma Blair says that Court called her a bulimic head case, and she's just <laughs> sitting back there fuming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, so rips good. her hair out. <laughs> well, that's also... That scene just starts with, like, a slow push on... Uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar standing up with like the they're sitting with the most erect posture I've ever seen a human have methodically brushing Selma Blair's hair it's completely <laughs> unhinged tableau <laughs> it's like a it's like a painting like it's like a, there are these moments that are really incredible like these really striking compositions uh but not in every scene certainly not I do appreciate uh, in hindsight, something that I think is is better in this movie than it was given credit for at the time is showing how like elite prep school Upper East Side New York spaces can be fucking racist. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that was a conversation that was not happening in 1999. We were very much still in like the uh, we fixed it, we did it, colorblind era, and and so Christine Baranski's character like blurting out the word black when she objects to her daughter dating her uh cello teacher and then yelling how dare you make this about race we gave money to colin powell (laughs) yeah that line's not even hyperbole that's like a thing that conservative people say yeah that's a thing that my parents friends said um yeah sometimes it's like weirdly keyed in and then other times not at all (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's the like proto i would have voted for obama a third time yeah for sure like, <laughs> and that character's great i mean when he storms out i mean they kick him out but when he's like walking down their like ridiculous hallway in their ridiculous part apartment what does he say is he saying the like black man is gone thank you jesus he's, like yelling the black man is gone mm-hmm. yeah i mean he does sort of like get the last laugh in that scene and i like that and i like that he you know comes back i think it's fun when you know sebastian finds him under the under the in the trundle bed or whatever with the feather uh, with Catherine later you know i like that character so mason i know that you've said plenty about the movie what have we missed what are the sort of key cruel intentions beats you'd want to cover in a in a conversation let's see we talked about the casting we talked about the music we talked about the clothes um we hated on ryan philippe a little bit (laughs) (laughs) we talked about what you know i mean this we talked about a little bit but like this movie is such a product of its i don't know if product of its time is even the right turn of phrase but it feels like so 90s and so late 90s and like it was made at the last possible moment it would be possible to make cruel intentions just for all the reasons like it wouldn't you know fly today and why an update of cruel intentions would be in the same way that like the heathers tv show update was just like poorly conceived yeah i feel like those are the main things guys i don't know did i miss anything i had one more thing uh in two different scenes in two different bedrooms there is a plate of like drained maraschino cherries next to (laughs) sebastian's bed what the fuck <laughs> that's the most perverted thing in the entire movie <laughs> if you're like i can understand wanting to have cherries nearby i get that it's like a metaphor for like sex stuff 
it's the most it's a very sexual fruit i get that but maraschino cherries they're like bright red <laughs> preserved <laughs> insanity <laughs> Bethy, you're the scholar here, so you you identified the reason for the letters. What what might you attribute the cherries to? I think it really is just a simple like first popping your cherry, and Sebastian is thus the original cherry popping daddy. Uh, we love cherry popping daddies on this show. Um, but what you're saying they is have that it's a sophisticated. Change the name to daddies. Oh, is that true? The daddies. Yes. Oh, cool. <laughs> but it's sophisticated metaphor, is what you're saying. Mm, mm, symbolism. It's like the cemetery, the cherries, Mm -hmm. the Coke uh, rosary. It's all a rich tapestry of of imagery. Mason, you had a thought. I had a thought, and it's a short thought. It is simple, and the thought is simply just the photo of Catherine and Sebastian's parents with the Clintons. (laughs) I don't even remember that, and I watched it today. I don't remember that either. (laughs) It's in, I think, one of the first, it's early in the movie. I think it's right when we meet Catherine and Sebastian together. And there's a, a little bit of banter about like, oh, they're in Bora Bora or Bali or whatever it is. And like dad's screwing the like st- hotel staff Diddling. or some shit. And then, ah, <laughs> and then they sort of like whip over to a family photo of the Valmont Mertoy group and Bill and Hillary are right in the middle. That's incredible. And I feel like that, you know, just tells you exactly who these people are kind of in ways intentional and unintentional. Um, but it's also kind of the only, you know, there's references to Colin Powell thing. And I'm sure there are a few others throughout. But yeah, this movie is very, very light on like cultural context about like the period of the new, the specifically late 90s, specifically wealthy, like New York milieu, you're kind of just there. And I feel like they construct it really, really well and can use those little visual cues here and there. They're always like in the same part of Central Park, you know, you see the houses and they're on the Hamptons and they're riding horses in their back. And I don't know, I do think that one of the maybe more formal things it does well is that shorthand for giving you the precisely exact amount of context for what kind of rich people we're dealing with here and that's fun no i think that's a really good uh point and on an equally intellectual note i don't think i've ever watched a movie that used the term diddling as a euphemism as much as this movie does <laughs> she says it twice in the same scene yeah and and all all told our, our listeners can tell me if i'm wrong but i think it might be like six times they use diddling six diddles and and they also use diddling to refer to like full on fucking, not like foreplay, which is weird to me. I think of diddling as like a like a half measure, but to them it's not. Isn't there also a bit of a sort of molesty connotation yeah. to diddling? That's not really that isn't isn't in the movie and all of its its iterations of the word. I think so. Yeah, I I thought of it as a molesting word, but it feels like Catherine uses it for any sex she feels is beneath the person doing the diddling so maybe it just is speaking to the power imbalance when she says it that way mm-hmm. this is me rationalizing just a buck wild word choice no that's that i i, I actually think that's a <laughs> I'm sure you're right. sharp yeah. reading of the text <laughs> i'm gonna have a phd when this podcast is over they're just gonna hand me so many honorary doctorates in like horny film studies <laughs> <laughs> horny film studies uh 
Yeah, I guess, Mason, we're going to have to have you back for all of the horny film studies episodes. Great. My co-chair. <laughs> the co-chair. Um, can I be your TA? Is that... Does that seem Or the adjunct, right? whatever you want to do. Oh, a- adjunct is like good. I'm not be, tenured, yeah. but I'm on the like faculty directory. Yeah, and like a tenured position might be opening up soon. I might, you know, retire and become just an emeritus. I come in and teach one class a year that I rule over like a mad god. <laughs> It'll be fun for me. Yeah, Thomas, your only real interview question is if you are or are not going to diddle the student. The answer is no. Then you can't have the job. I'm sorry. Oh, then the answer is <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I love my wife, but uh, if I have to diddle, then I can do that. Do a little diddle? You're hired. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Mason, uh, if people want to uh, chat with you in the studies of horny film how should how should they do that where people can find you online twitter i think is probably best i believe oh my god i don't know what my handle is i think it's m m s p e t a my last name is speta and then two m's in front of that yeah i think that's what it is and if it's not i'll just change it to that so i can i can be more easily found i'm gonna i'm gonna follow you that sounds great thank you um no, but for real, Thomas is one of the first like Twitter friends proper that I've made. And I, when I moved out to LA almost two years ago, I kind of was like, all right, who of my mutuals, who of my trusted mutuals can I sort of reach out to and see what the deal is um, out West? And he was one of them. And it has become a wonderful, not quite fully IRL friendship just because of what the last year or so has looked yeah. like. But um, hey, we're, we're working on it. Um, yeah, I'm still trying to reconcile the gap in my brain between Mason as celebrity and Mason as friend. But I think we're more more in the friend territory, at, at least at this time. Oh, stop <laughs> it, you. Um... <laughs> Bethy, are you are you online? Do you have do you have social media? Does the show have social media? Yes, both. All true. Uh, I'm at BethyBSQU on Twitter and at Bethy Squires on Instagram. The show is at MovieBarPod on Twitter and at MovieBar underscore pod on Instagram. What about you, Thomas? Uh, I am on Twitter. You can find me at at Handsome underscore Pal. We haven't said this in a while. Who does our uh, intro and outro music? That's my buddy Quentin Mulligan, who... uh is a musician by the name of From Here and gets more monthly streams on Spotify than any of my favorite bands. Uh, And he was lovely enough to reinterpret some piano I sent him. So, Quentin, bless you. And our cover art was designed by Lindsay Farrell, who also decorated the East Hollywood Community Fridge, uh, which is on Santa Monica near Virgil. So if if you need low barrier free food, go check out Lindsay's work. That's so cool. Also, Lindsay, I don't want to blow up your mm-hmm. spot, but um, you're a great Letterboxd follow. So I don't know how to find people on Letterboxd. Everyone's name's a little weird. But if you do some digging, she's got all the good opinions. And uh, Colin Jenkins is our producer who I won in a sex bet. <laughs> Bless you, Colin. Thank you so much. Thank you, Colin. And congratulations to you. <laughs> the team (laughs) um and mason because we we so appreciate you as a guest what's our new weekly sign-off our new weekly sign-off is peace out moron that's good (laughs) like from the movie 
Watching Movies at the Bar is edited by Colin Jenkins with show art by Lindsay Farrell. And that theme you hear at the top, that's Quentin Mulligan. <laughs> <laughs>